Hi, everyone. I hope you're well. You know, listeners often ask how they can help us create more stories, which is really great. The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUW Public Radio. And you can support this vital work by checking out our show notes. And you'll find a link there about contributing small monthly amounts to my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Become a part of the wild community and help fuel the next adventure. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. One thing that I love about my work is that I get the opportunity to talk to so many interesting people working with wildlife around the world. For today's episode, I wanted to share with you one of those conversations. Some of you might remember our episodes on how to catch a cougar back in season two. If you do, the name Dr. Mark Elbrock will probably sound familiar to you. Mark's a good friend of mine and a cougar biologist with Panthera. He took us out into the forest of Washington State to radio collar and track a cougar for those episodes, and it was an incredible experience. Well, I also had the honor of interviewing him on stage at Town Hall Seattle recently about the fascinating lives of cougars, mountain lions, and he's on the cutting edge of some leading research about their behavior, their ecology, and how we can protect and appreciate these, these beautiful big cats. And Mark's just written a book called The Cougar Conundrum, Sharing the World with a Successful Predator. And we'll talk about that too. Hope you enjoy our conversation. And as always, let us know what you think. <laughs> Welcome to the Grand Hall. Good evening, everybody. How are you all? Very nice to see you. I'm so glad that you've made it out here this evening. And uh, despite it all, right? <laughs> yeah, welcome, Mark. Thank you. I'm excited <laughs> to be here with you. Um, I've learned a lot from Mark already, uh, having spent time in the field with him, and uh, super excited about this conversation. Lots of specific questions for him about what mountain lions are about, the danger levels of mountain lions, uh, how we might coexist with them, the future of this species, because they're not just here in Washington State, of course, they're found right the way across the western portion of North America and into South America as well. So. First question is, like, how would you describe a mountain lion to someone? Ooh. So um, I think I, why don't I talk about some of the things people might not think of. Um, I think they're shorter than people think and that they're stockier than people think. Everyone talks about the long, lithe mountain lion. And you do see those, but those tend to be youngsters. When they're in the maturity of their of their healthy adulthood. They're, they're stocky and muscular and they generally have bellies. And you know, they, they look just really solid and uh, they don't come that high off the ground. They're more longer and they have this big hind end which they use for leaping. And a huge tail, of course, about a third their length is, is a tail. And the tail is muscular and thick and corded. And so it's, a, it's an impressive thing. Um, other things that, you know, perhaps someone like me can share is that they tend to smell of woods. They have thin, soft fur. They have intense eyes. You know, when one looks at you, you feel like it's weighed you at a glance. And they are intelligent and curious and yet nervous at the same time. Um, yeah, and then the other thing I'd share about them is that they always appear, anyone who owns a cat will know this, imperturbable, you know. But on the inside, I think they're actually a lot more going on than we think. But on the outside, they just look like calm as a cucumber. 
Yeah. Like the house cat. There's a lot of comparisons, right, with your regular house cat. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been fortunate to spend some time in, in the field with Mark, and I think you've got an image of... Uh, uh, that first image was one of the, cat, the cats that we captured, wasn't it? Go back to that that's first right, one. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, yeah, that picture, just describe to us what's going on there. Yeah, so that's um, a cat we actually caught with your team. And we caught two in one day, which was a special day. And, uh, but this is an adult male. He weighed about 175 pounds. Um, we, we allow people close and connected to the team to name the cats. And... So this, this cat was named by a tribal elder for the Lower Elwaklalem tribe after his grandfather uh, as Moses. And so Moses is actually easy to identify because he has a dark, dark nose and a wide nose. And so, I remember him being huge and you commenting on it at the time. He's big. Yeah. He, he was, I think, 100 and... I remember you doing the math that day as well, from kilos to pounds. Yeah, 175-ish pounds. Yeah. Didn't you say he was one of the biggest or the biggest at the time? He's the biggest we've caught in the north. Last year, I think it was, this, we have three capture teams, one led by the Skokomish tribe, and they caught a 185-pounder last winter. So that's a big animal. Wow. Yeah. Very unusual being that sort of size. Oh, I mean, I'd say average is more like 165, but they have the potential to continue to grow, we think, through much of their life. And so the older they can, and then good genes, they can, they can be big. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty. I see, it must also depend. Um, I'm already wandering off script here. I can't help it when it comes to talking to you about these cats. It must also depend how much food they have inside them, right? Well, not just can... food inside them, because they do vary from 15 to 20 pounds at a time, you know, just whether they're full or not, but also the kind of food they eat. So the cats here, which eat the largest elk subspecies in our country, are equally large to take down large prey. Right, right, wow. Um, you're clearly an animal lover. Is that something that you've had since, since childhood? What, what got you? Where was your childhood and where? Tell me about your childhood, Mark. <laughs> since, <laughs> where, where did all this begin? Since birth, yes. Um, I was born in England and, uh, you know, a successful, what I call a successful collaboration, American-English collaboration. My father was a U.S. military stationed over there and um, met my mother. And so... Yeah, I spent much of my childhood in the, in the sort of shadow of my grandfather, walked, walking around natural landscapes. He taught me plants and birds. And I remember I was five when I caught my first rabbit in a butterfly net. I'd stock up those, you know, and in England, the rabbits live in burrows. And so there's masses of them out there. And I'd sneak up with my butterfly. It took me a long time, but for some, I don't know how I did it, actually. I managed to catch one and brought it home for a while and then brought it back to the burrow. And it was amazing. But yeah, I mean that, lots of things. How do you go from being a child in, which, which county was it that you lived in? Suffolk. Yeah. Suffolk. Yeah. What, how do you go from being a child chasing rabbits with a butterfly net in Suffolk <laughs> to, to studying mountain lions? What was that leap? Oh, it was a simple leap. I mean, honestly, I, I was catching things. 25 foot, foot leap. Yeah, exactly. So catching animals my whole life and you know, bitten many times uh, through my childhood by various animals. The, the worst, I think, was when I was seven, I caught a rat, a real rat, uh, that would, my dog and a neighbor's or a friend's dog were, were about to tear to pieces, and it came out of this woodpile. And I grabbed it, 
uh, I was, you know, an intelligent seven-year-old. I got garden gloves on first, <laughs> you know, to protect myself from potential disease. And uh, the rat just bit me in an amazing spot, and blood was like spurting out of my hand. And I had to be rushed to the emergency room. And uh, you know, there I was, of course, cornered by several doctors who told me I can't, I can't be doing this with animals. That's not a good thing to do. And I defiantly told them that I was going to be like Jane Goodall when I grew up, oh, really? surrounded by wild animals. It's so. funny, because I, I kid you not, just before we came out here, we had the window open in the green room there, and Matt looks out the win- Mark looks out the window and goes, there's a rat. <laughs> <laughs> and it ran across the, the work site, across the road there. You've got, you've got your eye in for sure. Um, when you talk about, well... Back to that making mountain lions your, your life, was there something that grabbed you or, or, or an experience or, or, or something that sort of thrust you into it, thinking, okay, this is the, this is the species? Because it's a very specific study of, 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 that you've focused on, isn't it? A very specific species. No. <laughs> it's the same, the there really wasn't. Um, no. You know, many folks just sort of fall into to the work they do, and I think I was certainly one of them. Um, but I have chosen to stick with them, and yeah. that I think I can speak to more, more easily. I mean, it just sort of happened. Here I am, 20 years after I caught my first cat, 21 years, I guess. And uh, it is amazing to think that that happened, sort of just happened. <laughs> but there was some synchronicity. I sort of fell into mountain lines at just the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, technology was changing so rapidly. We had GPS collars and remote triggered cameras and then digital cameras and all of these things were new tools that allowed us to ask new questions and to explore things we'd never done before. And so that was super exciting of course. It was like a hook to keep me on. But the other part is that it's, it's you know, I enjoy the challenge. You know, it's physically challenging. I, you know, hiking mountains, trying to find them, trying to catch them, trying to follow them, trying to learn about them. Uh, but it's mentally challenging, just the scientific sort of aspects of coming up with questions and how do you answer them and how do you defend your answer. And it's emotionally challenging. I mean, it's draining at times to be caught in the middle of opposing views and what people are saying about mountain lions and dealing with misinformation and policy and regulation. But it, but it's all that challenge that, that keeps me engaged. And it's... Uh, it's because of that I've stayed with them. It's been a, it's been a journey. How many years now since you, your focus on, on mountain lions, Cougars? Well, I joined my first project in Idaho in 2000, January of 2000. And uh, there was a few years I bounced among other species, but it's been pretty much mountain lions. And so over that, over that time, since the year 2000 and, and focusing on this species, I'm, I'm thinking about the title of, of your book, The Cougar, The Cougar Conundrum. Here it is, if you guys haven't seen it, it's awesome. This is my dog-eared version that I've had for a few months, and I love it because, uh, Mark, you're a true scientist who delves into the science and it's fascinating stuff, but you're also a scientist that knows what people would be interested in as well and how to write it in a really compelling way, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's very approachable and interesting. It's a, just a damn good story, you know, which is really rare for a lot of scientists. But... Um, why, why the conundrum? What's the cougar conundrum? Why write a book about it? Yeah, sure. The, the conundrum is, is simple. It's, you know, we spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to wipe out mountain lions and other large carnivores, and we failed. We failed 
quite miserably in the West at least. And then we, we offered deer and elk protection through reducing and managing hunting. And then that was followed by giving some protection to mountain lions across most of the West. Everywhere but Texas, really. And, uh, and I think folks would have never predicted that there would be this many mountain lions after such a short time. And that, you know, we, we've moved from the, the challenge of saving them to living with them. And that's the current conundrum. It's a, you know, it could be broken into dozens of conundrums, but it's, it's really about how do we live with another large carnivore? Because we are one too, and we don't like to share. So. Um, and that's why you needed a, a book to describe the ins and outs of this. One of the fascinating things to me is, is just how you describe them as being part of an intricate ecosystem. It's a complicated world, the ecosystem of a cougar. Can you, hmm. can you talk us through some of it? Yeah, and that, you know, it kind of gets me, I think, you know, just to go back to the book for a moment, the, you know, it, the world has changed. We all know this, right? There's, you know, everything is polarized now. <laughs> so everything's divisive. There's debate over everything. And, and mountain lions are just one of those many things. So game management in general is quite filled with politics and division. And social media and the internet have allowed information to flow so fast and people can stand up and be a self-proclaimed expert on any subject and there's just an amazing amount of misinformation. And so that was part of the reason I thought, you know, I, I would invest in, in writing this book because I would witness these exchanges over mountain lions and sometimes the hound hunters would be right sometimes the wildlife advocates would be right meaning like they had the right facts that they were basing their argument on and more rarely the elk and deer hunters would have the right facts but uh, there was this constant flow of misinformation and so that was really one of the goals of, of the book was to just kind of put out there what I think we know about the species so that we can all at least start with on an even playing field and, and then move forward. Because of course, everyone has their own opinions and that's fine, but at least let's start with what we know and what we don't. Um, you it's wanted so to talk about ecology. Yeah. yeah, so some of the things that you uncovered in the process of the research you've done that culminates in, in the book is, is based on the surprising ecological connections, right? And Absolutely, and it's something that I continue to pursue. So, you know, we'll, I think we'll talk about this quite a bit, but for me, you know, part of the, the challenge of living with mountain lions is helping others to, to recognize that it's perhaps a good thing to live with mountain lions. You know? Understanding that, I will, uh, I'll try a, an analogy on you, and you can, I would, I would appreciate your feedback. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to talk about this with people. When you think of a mountain lion, and it has hundreds and hundreds of relationships with birds, plants, insects, other mammals, and those relationships are varied. Some are competition, some they eat, some eat them, you know, these, all of these types of relationships. But you realize how connected they are, and that the ecosystem is more connected when they're present through them with each other. And that we know that the more connections there are amongst animals and wildlife and flora and fauna, the stronger the system, 
the healthier the system, the more resilient the system. So when I think of mountain lions, this is how I might put it. If you build a bridge out of cement, would you drive across it? Yes. <laughs> is it a trick question? Would, well, or would you rather it had a metal framework, like uh, rebar? Yes. yes. Okay. And that's the way I think of mountain lions, is that they are the invisible rebar in a system. They're one of many species that do this. I like that. But they make it stronger. And that even though when you don't even see them, they are playing that role. And ultimately what you know, I sort of get to through this you know, paper with these people is that the idea that people, our children, our lives, are enriched by having mountain lions. And not just enriched, the deer, the elk, the salmon berries, the chanterelles that you gather, I think it's fair to say that they are more nutrient dense because of the presence of mountain lions. Can you give us an example, what if I was to say how? How are they, like the, 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 the steel frame in the concrete yeah, yeah. bridge? You know? So again, thinking again, again about ecosystems as pathways, that you want as many pathways for energy to move as you can. And so just a couple of weeks ago, for instance, we had a cat named Papish. He lives on the coast of the peninsula. And uh, he, he drug a dead, well, we actually don't know if it was dead or alive, a seal hmm. off the beach Whoa. into the woods, and he ate it. And that is moving marine nutrients in a system that is typically closed off from the terrestrial system. And a, and a story you've probably heard before is how bears bring salmon into the woods and how this is so important and so vital to enriching those systems. Well, cats are doing the same thing. They're bringing seals into the woods. They're actually catching salmon. We have them catching salmon in the rivers as they run on the peninsula. We have them hunting the raccoons that are coastal raccoons that are eating all the crabs and mussels, etc. And they're bringing them into the woods. And so they're, that's just one of the ways that they increase the pathways of energy flow and nutrient flow in systems by bringing marine nutrients, which are so rich, so powerful, into the terrestrial system to enrich the whole coast. Isn't it amazing that we live in a state where there is a coast that is that wild that enables a cougar to walk out, grab a seal and drag it into the woods? <laughs> I mean, it, it could all be built up and developed and it, it's just incredible just looking at a map yeah. of that and knowing that it's That there. was in the park too, on the, was in it the Olympic really? National Park, yeah. Do you know how many, how many cougars live on the peninsula? I know that's a crazy question, but is there any kind of estimate for, I'm just getting, trying to get a feel for the density of cats out there that might be looking out to sea and <laughs> fishing right. for seals or being a part of that ecosystem? There's never been an estimate for the Olympics, like the work done on the Olympics to come up with an estimate. The state, our state agency here, has done estimates in five different places in the state. And based on that research, they kind of assume that there'd be roughly, again, two-ish cats per 100 square kilometers or 38 square miles. Um, but we will answer that question. We are in the process of estimating the abundance of cats on the peninsula as we speak. More from my conversation with cougar biologist and author Mark Elbrock after the break. Hey, wild listeners. I'm Lucy Suchak, a producer on The Wild. I want to introduce you to another show you might like. Out There is an award-winning podcast about regular people whose lives have changed because of an experience with nature. A while back, we had an episode about the quietest place on Earth. The new season of Out There is all about silence. 
They'll explore how we find stillness amidst the noise of life. The new season of Out There launches in April. Follow them wherever you get your podcasts or at outtherepodcast.com. Hello, listeners of the wild. You're into podcasts that help you think more about the world around you. It's why you're listening to this show, right? Well, here's another show for you to check out. Terra Firma is a podcast that combines the sounds of nature with stories and reflections by C. Marie Furman, an indigenous poet and writer. This is grace. The way the sun bathes the shortest days in the kindest light. Find Terra Firma from Colorado Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Let's uh, switch topics a little bit here now that you've given us an introduction to their world. Um, You know, the the, the first question on most people's minds when it comes to cougars is is the danger level, you know. A lot of people, there's there's a bit of a a widely held stereotype that uh, mountain lions are dangerous. Uh, Just a few years ago, a a mountain uh, biker was was killed here in in the Cascades. Um, It's a very rare thing, but what's your reaction when when people ask you, are they dangerous? How How do you respond to that? What, I, what I'd like to be careful about is that, you know, people do have scary experiences with mountain lions, and that's real. And I don't want to belittle those experiences. And we do know that mountain lions kill people. That's real. That's a fact. Um, but it's rare. And one of the things I would emphasize is that, you know, the fatality that you mentioned is the second in recorded history in Washington State. You know, that's two. And... More importantly is that mountain lions are such individuals. They're all different. And that yes, at times, an individual mountain lion under the right circumstances might pose a threat to pets, livestock, or people. But that is a rare mountain lion. And that in general, I think the character of a mountain lion is extreme caution, extreme, to the point where they are looking for any way to avoid confrontation at all times. And I've had close encounters with mountain lions many times. Um, you know, one I'm thinking of as in, in Wyoming was a, a mad, crazy snowstorm. And I could see I got an upload of data from these two females. And so I knew this female had been sitting on a kill. And with her small kittens. And I could see this other female with old kittens was coming in and was like a couple hundred yards from her. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get cameras out there to be able to just capture the interaction. Mm -hmm. And so I threw them in the truck and it's like snowing like a banshee. I won't go through all the details. I did go up this mountain. I got stuck a couple of times, but I made it. You know, I got up there and I just start hiking, you know, I've got all my cameras, and I'm like hiking into the snowstorm, and I knew where the kill was, because I had visited it earlier in the week. And I had actually had a couple cameras, but I was worried they were done by now, so I wanted to change them. And I knew I just followed this, where the drop-off was, so I didn't have to see much, I just knew the drop-off was right here on my left, and I just would wrap around, and I would eventually get to this kill. And I'm just going, and my head's down, because, you know, the snow's horizontal, it's starting to get dark, but I'm just like, getting there. And I come around a tree, and, you know, I enter this, like, bubble of no wind. You know, it was the perfect spot where there was just no wind. There's hardly any snow. And from here to the edge of the stage is F-51, this female, and four very small three-month-old kittens. And she stands up, and I've had a lot of close encounters with cats, and usually they run, right? 
But the first thing she did was step towards me. And I was like, and I just knew that this, this was not the way things are supposed to go down. And she took another step at me and I just, you know, and immediately stepped at her and I just started yelling. And I clapped my hands as loud as I can. I'm like, you do not want to do this, you know, do not do this, do not come any forward, you know, and she just froze, and I'm just still yelling at her, do not do this, do not come any closer, you know, just really getting in her face, clapping, banging, 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 it went on for what felt like a very long time, and then she glanced over her shoulder, the kittens had just evaporated into the snowstorm, and she turned and she left, and that's a pretty, that's what most encounters would be if you just go, <laughs> you know. Right, show them who's boss. <laughs> right. and I, I've heard a good tip for, for kids, those of you with young kids when you're out in cougar country, is to, you know, to help the kids understand that the larger they look, the more intimidating they look. And they can unzip their jackets, right? Unzip their jacket and then pull the coat up above their head so it makes them look third larger than they actually are. It's a good, a good trick. It's fun for kids to know. And Absolutely. it's a good instant reaction for them to understand, you know. And uh, yeah, it's all about that dominance thing by the sound yeah, of things. Yeah, do not let a, a cat gain momentum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've talked a little bit about the females with kittens. And let's, let's talk about the social lives of these cats a little bit, you know. Because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're known for being solitary animals. Most people think that they live these solitary lives and lone hunters. But a lot of your research shows otherwise, doesn't it? It shows that, that these cats actually spend time together. What, what have you found? Yeah, um, the way I describe sort of mountain lion communities now, because, you know, most people think of mountain lions, you know, a big population that's just spread across the world or across the state or wherever you live. And I don't envision them that way anymore. I think of them as a collection of small communities and that these communities are, are generally governed by a, a territorial male. And within those communities, there's frequent interactions. Represents... First of all, I love the word governor, by the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like it's a pretty interesting way to start perceiving what is going on in this society. Yeah, yeah he sort of he defines the, the limits of a community in terms of its space, but also in many ways influences who interacts with who. So he does have sort of authority, if you will, or influence in his fiefdom or whatever you want to call it. And so within a, a community, these, look at M29 and M85, these are real cats with sort of their rough home ranges, and they're the dominant males. And then within their communities, there's frequent interactions. And these aren't just interactions, these are actual instances of food sharing. Who's sharing food with who? And the thicker the arrow, the more often it happened. And you can see it's mostly happening within the communities, but occasionally across it as well. And so what's interesting is to think about you know, a couple of things that come out of our work is that food may be a social currency because most interactions between mountain lions aren't fighting or courtship. They're about sharing food. And the other is that we found a tremendous amount of reciprocity. And that means that when one mountain lion shared with another, that mountain lion was 7.7 .7 times more likely to share back oh, really? in the future with that other mountain lion. Mm. And, you know, it's a fascinating thing to talk about reciprocity. For many, many years, we thought only humans were, were sort of capable of, of the mental gymnastics to think about reciprocity because it implies that they have a history with an individual and that they make a decision based on that history. Mm. And so that's complex thinking. Yeah, especially when it comes down to history with one particular individual, right? I mean, right. 
That's incredible. I mean, even to think of interacting enough for them to deduce that is, is kind of cool, really. Can you just tell us a bit about your current focus project and, and uh, what you're working on here locally and, and, sure. and, and abroad, Mark? Yeah, you've got, I'm glad you, you asked because I you're stuck in a, a picture. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> yes. So uh, I stuck in two pictures. So I work for Panthera, and we have a Puma program, and so we work across the Americas. We have four major projects now. The, the one is local on the Olympic Peninsula. And it's an amazing project. And it's um, Kim Sager-Fradkin, who's on the far end there with the hat. She is the wildlife manager for the Lower Oaklalum tribe. And the two of us co-lead this, what we call the Olympic Cougar Project. And it's in collaboration with all of these others, the Skokomish tribe, the Macaw tribe, the Jamestown and Port Gamble Sklalem tribes, uh, the Quinault Indian Nation, the Point No Point Treaty Council, as well as the Department of Transportation. And it's st studying mountain lions on such a scale as I've never done before, you know, across the peninsula. Um, huge effort looking at what, how many there are, um, all about their dispersal ecology and how they connect across I-5 to the lower Cascadia, um, with the real goal of building bridges, which is super exciting. And you mean literally building? Uh, literally building bridges to connect the Olympics to the Cascades. And like that's, they've done on, on I-90? Right, exactly. And Washington's such a, a forefront runner in this. And this is, you know, the synchronicity of all this. There, was, there just also was a, a new group, a working group, on wildlife connectivity across I-5 being started, uh, really had started just before we began. And so we were all able to come together and now we can feed our data into this, you know, already existing working group to, to really look at how and map connectivity across the state. And so part of it with radio collaring some of these cats and then using all of these cameras, you've got a massive camera network, I know, is that will reveal to you whether perhaps they are already, are they potentially getting across I-5 in places? That's we have believe. yet to see one succeed. Uh, that's our, why we're focusing on dispersers, which are meaning those young animals that leave mom but haven't found a territory of their own. And so they're the ones that really are the most likely to cross I-5. And so far, we haven't seen it. We've had some really... We did have one that crossed and came right back in a terrible place. Um, that's the, the closest we've gotten. We've had a few others put their paw on the pavement and we're like, well, no, 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 no. Um, uh, we had one that we thought might get around to the north in an unexpected avenue, swam to Squaxin Island, and if he had swum to that distance again to the next island, he could have popped around Olympia that way and crossed underneath through the National Wildlife Refuge. That would have been amazing, but he was unfortunately shot uh, en route. And, I mean, these cats are, it's, it's, you know, it's tragic stories. We're watching them die in, in, in every way, disease and people and hunting and um, it just is on and on. But, uh, but it is, that is the best, strongest data to kind of test that idea that they can cross. What, uh, I know you're also working in, in Chile and uh, oh, yeah. Patagonia yeah, yeah. So as well. So I stuck in my one more slide. So that might just lead us into also, yeah. you know, your feelings about the future of this species and... One thing at a time first, just, just the overview of how they're doing globally, meaning yeah. the Americas, right? Um, right. That's... And, and then what the future might hold for them. So mountain lions, how are they doing? Um, I, I think, honestly, they're doing okay. You know, there's, there's lots of mountain lions in the West. That said, you know, the United States is, has the greatest potential for recovery. So with European settlement, 
you know, we, we, we waged a war on carnivores and, and native people, and, you know, we wiped out mountain lions from the east. And there has been slow recovery since then across the Americas. That happened in Patagonia, that happened in other, part, other countries, Honduras and many others, where we were able to wipe out mountain lions from parts of the countries. And there has been a recovery since. And, but when you look at the map, the United States still has the most landscape where they used to be, but are yet to recover. And so, you know, the United States has room for improvement and for expansion. But again, they're doing okay. And, and to, I guess what I would emphasize is that, I think I said at the beginning, it's, we're at the point where we're not worried about saving mountain lions. Under their current management, there's, they're going to be here. Uh, but we do need to really emphasize how do we live with them. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned this, this expansion, um, one of the things in your book that blew me away, thank goodness you've got this book, because I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. It's like, <laughs> yeah. the rest of it's in here, folks. Um, there was a cat uh, that went from South Dakota to Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. 1,800 miles by, est I mean, it's an estimated sort of path of travel. It was an amazing story. Hit on a highway in Connecticut in 2011. There was huge debate over whether someone had driven this cat to the East Coast and released it. And, uh, you know, over the next year, they were able to use the genetic samples collected by other state biologists, you know, who just as part of routine, they find tracks in the snow, they pick up a poop, they get the genetics. And once it was all compiled, they found evidence in five places along the path of this cat. So they knew that it hadn't been driven out. And so by estimate, 1,800 miles, which would be get the longest dispersal of any known mammal in the world to date. Wow, really? Yeah. I don't know if that's true of, of marine species. I do know that's true for terrestrial. Terrestrial. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah, that's, that's unimaginable. And I, and I know they're moving north as well, right? And, and yeah, with climate change, you know, there's an expansion of, of deer, really, uh, moving north into northern Canada. So northern BC, New York, northern Alberta, and the cats are following. And so they're following in their footsteps, and that is, of course, creating new problems as they interact with endangered woodland caribou. One of the things that we've chatted about in the past that I, I, I always enjoy talking to you about is, because you're a scientist, you're based, you work on populations, on hard science, but you, you, you're a, I'm going to say it, you're a scientist with a heart. You know, you love these creatures and you seem to value each and every one of them uh, in a way that a lot of scientists don't because they're looking at the broader picture. But you seem to have both. Uh, with that in mind, what do you, what do you think uh, perhaps a, a, a new future with these cats could look like? What, how can we adjust our relationship with them in some way? Is that something you think about and try to... <laughs> Push. That's what all I think about these what, what days. Would it, what would it is, be? Uh, I mean, the future is... I'll say it's two-sided, right? On one side, it's... I see inevitable conflict uh, increasing. You know, there are more and more people, there's less and less wildlands, that I just see that there's conflict in our future. Um, but the flip side is that there is real movement and there is real change in American cultural values. And if embraced fully, that we could coexist with them as we never have before. So, I mean, it's, we're at a turning point and absolutely we must choose coexistence. 
And it is a choice. And I think what most folks don't think about is the variety of opinions in our culture. And everyone's entitled to opinion, and it's, everyone is, and, and that's absolutely true. And most folks, I think, don't think about mountain lions at all. You know, we know that there are folks who love them and will do anything to protect them and say anything to protect them, and then we know that there are those who hate them. But those are the two extremes and the two small groups of people. Most folks don't think about mountain lions much at all, and if they do, they just assume that, heck yeah, I'd like my life to be safer, and why would you have live with a carnivore, and heck yeah, if one kills my goat, you better, you know, I want my public money to help remove it. So what does that mean for our future? It means we've got lots of work to do about understanding how to build tolerance, and that's social work and psychological work and just working with people to understand how people come up with their values and beliefs and how we can change them. But it's also education. We need to do a tremendous amount of work to help people understand the positive things that they do for us and our ecosystems. Because ultimately, I, I guess my message is this, that I have children, many of you have children. I know my children are healthier because we live in systems of mountain lions. And I really believe that. And so that if we want healthy human communities, we want to live in healthy human wildlife integrated communities. And that those systems are stronger when we have mountain lions. Very nice. Because that's not just heart, that's factual, no, no, concrete stuff. I think we've got that, the evidence to show that that is true. Yes. Well, Thanks thank for you. everything that you do, Mark. Really appreciate it. Really, thank you so much for coming and, and making this happen. Thanks, so. Mark. Mm. Thank you, everybody. Mark Elbrock is a cougar biologist with Panthera and author of the book The Cougar Conundrum, Sharing the World with a Successful Predator. I'd like to thank Town Hall Seattle for hosting this event with Mark and I and for sharing the audio with us. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. I'm Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.